Thanks, Luke. Well, good morning. Good morning. If you were with us last week, you know that we started a new sermon series that we're going to be in for, well, right up until, well, what, another seven weeks to come still, actually. You're going to spend some time in this section of Scripture as we talk about the topic of a sure foundation. Regardless of what it is that we're trying to build, if it's a building, if it's an entity, if it's a business, if it's a church, the most important thing that we need to be focused upon, first and foremost, is the foundation. And so as we're beginning a new season of ministry together, we're going to be establishing that foundation upon the Word of God. Now, in the final hours that Jesus walked upon this earth, he, he walked alongside his disciples and he taught them some of the great themes of Christian faith. And over these weeks, we're going to be walking alongside them, unpacking and examining some of these great lessons that we found in the Bible, of book of John, chapter 15 through 17. If you recall last week, we talked about how we need to be remaining connected to the true vine, that true vine who is Jesus Christ. And by being connected to him, it provides us with a sense of vitality and power that we need as branches, as branches that extend out from that vine, if we're going to be bearing good eternal fruit, if we're going to be able to glorify God, and if we're going to experience the joy in God that is rightfully ours to have as we abide in Jesus Christ. And this vital connection is the difference between thriving in our Christian walk and merely surviving. You know, when you merely survive in that Christian walk where there's kind of a, a drudgery, you think, I read about joy, I hear about joy, but why am I not experiencing joy in my Christian life? If that's the case where you find yourself, as I shared last week, I suggest you look back to what does that connection with the vine look like in your life? Maybe we need to plug back into the source of all of those things, that we can experience them again. You may also recall, I shared a little bit about how showing love to God through Jesus Christ is equated with obeying His commands. And this week we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to focus upon one specific command. A specific command that Jesus gave us, and that being the command that we are to love each other. Now, to start off this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to have to ask you to help me out. We're going to do a little bit of congregational participation, okay? So I may need to your throats a little bit, maybe sit up a little straighter so you can, you can interact with me a little bit, okay? Can we do this? All right. Here's what I'm going to do. It's going to be simple. It's not going to be hard. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a couple of images, uh, logos, if you will, that are very familiar. I promise you will know what these are. And so number one, I just want you to just to call out the name of what it is, okay? And then number two, a little bit trickier, but still, still easy to do. Number two after we call it a name, I want you to share with me what is the first word, what is the first phrase that comes to mind when you think of that logo, okay? I'll give you a quick example. First example, we all know this is the logo for Target. Thank you. Right. And so Target, it's the company logo for Target, and there's this first thing that comes to mind, and it's unique in Canada, because in Canada, when we see the logo for Target, we get confused and think Walmart, Right? Which is why we all end up going shopping at Walmart and Target had to make a hard choice <laughs> and actually close their doors. So the first thing that comes to mind in Canada when we see Target is Walmart, right? <laughs> Let's try another one. Uh, what's this? Told you they'd be easy, right? So what's the first thing that comes to mind when you see McDonald's? Fries, I heard fries. Yeah, yeah. Somebody's, sorry? Yeah, it's my, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, somebody said creepy clowns, 
Let's try one more here. What about this one? Apple. Yeah. What comes to mind when you see the Apple logo? Expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Steve Jobs, computers, music. Yeah. No viruses. Amen, brother. Yes. <laughs> no viruses. And then let's do one more here. What's this one? Pepsi. So what's the first thing that comes to mind when you see Pepsi? Not as good as, I knew somebody <laughs> would have a reaction against Pepsi. Yeah, I had a Pepsi and staff meeting and I heard about it this past week. <laughs> yeah, so we all have. Now here's the thing, here's the interesting thing about all of these, is that when we see these logos, we all know the same name. We all know that logo, we know the name associated with it, but when we see McDonald's, we, the Golden Arches, we think McDonald's, we know Apple, we know Pepsi, but when it comes to our opinion and our view of each of these, it's unique. Even though we know the same name, our response to them and our experiences with them have informed us where we have different reactions when we see them. If you're a fan of Coke, you'll have a negative reaction to Pepsi. If you're trying to eat healthy and you see the golden arches, you're going to crave those fries, but you're going to regret the thought of eating them. Isn't that interesting how we can see the same logo, see the same item, and yet have a different reaction to them? Well, let me ask you this question. What do you think people feel or hear or think when they hear the word Christian? What do you think comes to their mind? And it's something that Jesus was concerned about, and I hope it's something that we're concerned about as well. Because just like these brands and these logos, they need us to have responses that are deeply influenced by our experiences with them. The same holds true when they hear the word or inter- encounter people who claim to be followers of Jesus. And this was a concern for Jesus, so much so that earlier on the evening on which our teaching series takes place, back a couple chapters in John 13, Jesus shared with them that when people think of his followers, and ergo when people think of him, he wants one word to come to mind. And he wants that word to be love. He said in John chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another. I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. In saying this, he's making a declaration. He was stating that from now on, the distinguishing mark of followers of Jesus Christ would be love. And just as Jesus Christ died for all people that they may have an opportunity to experience that love, so too he wants us to pick up that mantle and go forth to show love to all people. But more specifically, in the passage we're looking at today, he wants it so that all followers of Jesus Christ share in a deep devotion to one another. That we in this building, we in this place, we in the greater body of Christ beyond the walls and other churches around this city and nation, around the world, that we would be known as one body who loves each other, is the command that he gives us. And so today as we walk through these few verses, it's my prayer that we'll come to a deeper understanding of our relationship with Jesus Christ, of his love for us, and that the love that we're to show to one another would take deep root within our hearts. I believe that we are loving people. Nadine and I have been warmly welcomed among you already. And I know love exists in this place. And I pray that that will become a defining characteristic when people think of West Meadows. They think of love in the days that are ahead.
Now this new command that Jesus shares with us in John chapter 13 is restated in our passage for today, which we find in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, which Reuben read for us earlier. And in this opening section, Jesus explains that the intimacy that we are to share with one another is to be a reflection of Christ's love for us. It's to be a reflection of his love for us. He says, this is my command. You are to love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down their life for their friends. Last week we talked about how abiding in Christ and loving Christ is equated with obeying Christ's commands. And in the church, and these commands are, are now summarized really into one command for us, that command that we would love each other as he has loved us. Now in the church we talk quite often about Jesus' love for us, but we don't often pause to consider what does that look like? Like, what does that mean that Jesus loves us? What does that look like in history or in my own personal life? Well, there's many things that we could answer to that question, but there's a few things that I just want to share with you that I think, I would hope, that we would all know. Number one, we know that God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would be saved through him. We know that in Jesus' teaching ministry that he had compassion and he had time for everybody, regardless of how low they were on the social ladder, regardless of how sinful they were in their past, regardless of how broken they were in their spirits, he had time for them. We know that in his ministry he had this ability and this commitment to revealing a perfect balance between truth and grace as he entered into a person's life and into their situation. And we know that while we were still enemies of God, while we were still walking our own way, wandering in a state of betrayal against God, even in the midst of that, that Jesus was willing to give it all up. He was willing to come and die upon the cross for our sins, which is a bit of a foreshadowing going on in verse 13 here when Jesus says there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friend. That's a strong statement that he's sharing to us. He's not just talking about himself. He's he's giving this as part of his direction to us. That's a strong statement for the disciples as it is for us today. That such an act of devotion is not really expected in today's culture or in the culture of the disciples. If you think about it throughout history, anybody who was willing to give up their life for a principle, for a cause, for a belief, because it is so countercultural and so beyond the norm that's expected, we lift these people up and highly esteem them. We see examples in our own world, and in a positive sense, where, where the men and women who serve in our armed forces, who go around the world and stand in harm's way to protect us and to protect our freedoms. We have a day on the calendar set aside to remember them. We have them at sporting events on TV. We acknowledge them and and we show them in the opening ceremonies of things to to recognize their service and to recognize them. There's people who have been martyrs of the faith, who have been persecuted to the point of death because they would not renounce the name of Jesus Christ. And in some traditions, there are holidays for some of these people. But beyond those, there are people's names you will never know who endure that on a daily basis. And when we hear their stories, we feel a sense of esteem and honor in our hearts as we hear their stories. That they'd be willing to commit that much to their belief and to their causes. And then, of course, as mentioned just a moment ago, there's the most important sacrifice that was ever made. 
that of Jesus Christ where he laid down his life for us, for all of us, which Paul beautifully summarizes in this context for us in in Romans chapter 5 when he says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God, as an incredible demonstration of his love for us, did this. That while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, even at that point, Christ died for us. The opening point Jesus is trying to make here for us is that we are called to this deepest of devotion for one another. It's a sobering commitment of unity and of care for one another to the point where there is nothing that could come between us. Because there is nothing in our lives or in our church culture or in, our, in, in, in the greater body of Christ that is of a higher priority. There is nothing that is of a higher priority. Everything else takes second place to the point where we would be willing to die for one another. That, that's a sobering thought. But that's what he's teaching in this passage. Now I know some of you may be thinking, I, I can't do that. There are some people who are just really hard to love. They bring out the worst in me. And you're right. There are some people who are very difficult to love. All of us struggle with some type of person. It might have to do with our experiences. It may have to do with our upbringing. It may have to do with the teaching that we have or have not received. You know, you may wrestle with people who are generally arrogant. People who have a hostile attitude, perhaps. You may have a difficult time with the chronic complainers or the Sheldon Cooper know-it-alls of the world, right? Or those who have the spiritual gift of criticism. Those are a special blessing that we have, right? Or maybe, maybe for you, you have a hard time with people who align themselves with certain views of theology. Or maybe you just, you just don't understand people who have different styles of worship, And it's difficult to accept. And and I'm not going to try and tell you, I'm not going to try and convince you that it's easy to overcome these things. In fact, you know what I'm going to tell you? I'm going to tell you that you can't. I'm going to tell you that you can't just try harder to love these people. Because I can't. And you can't. Because you see, it's not about us just trying harder. We need to go beyond that and get connected to the source that empowers that to be possible. Because remember, we're just branches. We're just branches that have no power in and of ourselves. The power, the love, the example that we need to make it possible for us to do that comes from the vine, from being connected to the vine. And loving each other because of Jesus Christ is Christian fruit. That is an example of Christian fruit. John would talk about this later on again in one of the letters he wrote in 1 John chapter 4 when he says, Beloved, here's that command again, let us love one another. For love comes from where? Love comes from God. And if we're in relationship with him, if we, if we know him, if we're loving because of him, then it's evidence that we've been born of him and that we know him. And this is the love that he's speaking of. It's not that we loved God. It's not that we tried hard, that we mustered up the strength. It's not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's the vine. That's the source we need to tap into. And so you see, when we're talking about Christian love, what we're talking about is his example. We're talking about his enabling, and we're talking about our response that comes through that. 
Now, since Jesus has presented himself in this scenario where he, we're to look at him as our example of love, while also he is presented as the empowering source of our love, it really stands in order that we need to understand the nature of our relationship to him if we're going to be able to tap into that vine and thereby love one another. So he continues to teach in this section by, first of all, honoring us. Jesus honors us in the next verse when he refers to us as friends. He calls us friends, but it's a qualified friendship. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now, to be considered a friend of God is a pretty big deal. I think we'd all agree that's a pretty significant thing to hear from God. And it's actually considered the highest possible relationship that we could ever have with God. And as we saw last week in chapter 10, if you were to read back in your Bible, if you have it open there, you'd see in chapter 10 that by obeying his commands, a bit of what we're talking about today as well, that allows us to remain in his love and to remain in this relationship with him. Now, that's not our typical understanding of how friendship's supposed to work, however. Like, imagine if you had a friend, or maybe you do have a friend who's like this, where they're the type of person that it has to always be everything the way they want it. At times, they may take you into consideration, but ultimately, it was still their choice to take you into consideration. Right? It's always their schedule, their movie, their restaurant, their TV show. That would be a very frustrating scenario. And at some point, you would find yourself asking, aren't we supposed to be equals in this relationship? Aren't we both supposed to be equals, kind of a reciprocating thing back and forth? But, but see, that's the key difference when it comes to Jesus. We're not supposed to be equals. That while we do have an honored possession, uh, position where Scripture says that we are friends of Jesus, Scripture never says that Jesus is our friend. Now, you might think I'm just playing on semantics here a little bit, but, but let me flesh this out for you a little bit. See, Scripture never says he is our friend. Because if it did, it would actually badly distort and misrepresent our relationship with Jesus and who he is. Because we don't often use the word friend, we often use the word king. We use the word rabbi, teacher. Scripture talks about him as the alpha and the omega, as the chief shepherd, as the Lord of lords and the king of kings, as the holy one, as the son of God. And you can see in these titles, friendship doesn't, friend doesn't quite seem to measure up in that because they don't. It's not an equal reciprocal relationship. He is God and we are not. But we are blessed. We are blessed and privileged to have the position of friend. And that status that he grants to us gives us access to the Father. Which is what he talks about in the next verse when he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. And so in here, there's a distinction made. There's a distinction made between servants who are merely agents doing as they're commanded without understanding and friends who are different. Friends are active participants with knowledge of the Father's plans, who have access and knowledge of the overall purpose and who can understand their role in the bigger picture. Suppose, you can think of it this way. Suppose a king ordered his chauffeur to bring the car around front. The chauffeur would just go and do it. 
without asking for a detailed explanation, without asking or expecting a written itinerary, and he certainly wouldn't look at the king and go, what exactly is the nature of your business today? He would just go do it as an agent of the command of the king. Now imagine that same king has a close friend, and he asks his close friend to go fetch the car. The friend might venture a few questions because the relationship is a little bit different. Now he's not disposed to tell the king what to do, but he will likely have access to some of the greater plans as far as where we're going and why. In Scripture, we can see these principles lived out in the lives of two characters in the Old Testament, the, old, the only two men who are referred to in the Old Testament as friends of God, that being Moses and Abraham. In Exodus chapter 33, we're told that God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to a friend, yet God did not show his face to Moses. And so in that verse, we see that Moses had a special position of being able to talk to God as a friend, yet they were not equal, because God cannot show his face to Moses. And then we see this in Abraham as well, where throughout Scripture, a couple of times, Abraham is referred to as a friend of God, but not in an equal status. And if you read the account in Genesis 18, where, where God comes and visits Abraham and, and decides to share his plan for the destruction of Sodom, Adam is in a position, a relational position, where he's permitted to bargain with God for that place. But the final decision still rests with God. So the task here is, the text here is asking us a question. It's asking us the question, are you a friend of Jesus? And our response must not be vague. We, we can't respond with, well, I try to be. I would sure like to be. Boy, I would sure like to be. Instead, if we understand our position because of Jesus Christ, we do not have to respond with vague responses because by his love and by his grace, by his invitation, we can say, yes, I am a friend of Jesus. And my friendship with him is characterized by two things. Number one, it's characterized by the fact that I do what Jesus commands. And secondly, through Jesus' revelation, through the Holy Spirit that lives within me, I know the Father's will. And I seek to live it and apply it in my life. It's the nature of the friendship we find ourselves in with Jesus. But it continues a little bit. Now, have you ever heard the saying, you can choose your friends, but you're stuck with your family? <laughs> Have you ever heard that? You probably said that at some point as well. Boy, I can choose my friends, but I'm sure stuck with this crowd. Right? Thanksgiving's coming. That's probably going to come up. Christmas is coming. We're probably going to have some of these thoughts. If my voice comes to your mind in the midst of that, you're welcome. <laughs> now, this is generally a true statement in life, but, but it's actually not the case when it comes to being friends with Jesus. Because as he continues to unpack the nature of this friendship we have with him, this friendship, which is the basis by which we are able to love one another, he explicitly tells us that you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give you. Ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now, when we were little kids, Mom and dad had a strong hand in choosing who our friends were for us, based upon who they gave us access to, where they took us, the church we went to, the family friends we had. As we get a little older, we start making some of those choices for ourselves. And, and at times, the choices we make are to the chagrin of mom and dad. 
all the parents of teenagers said amen to that. But even in the ancient Near East, it was, it was calling for a student who was looking for a rabbi to learn from that they would make that choice themselves even. Kind of like where our young adults in, in this day and age will go through a process of choosing which university they want to go to. But in a turn of events on this, Jesus says that he chose you to be his friend, to be a friend of his. And has given you an important role to fill in that relationship. Now, for the disciples to hear that Jesus chose them would cause them to replay in their minds the events that led to them becoming followers. Simon and Andrew would think back to, well, that day we were out fishing together, and, and Jesus walked along the shore, and he called out to them and said, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they left, and they followed. James and John would recall the scene very similar to that when they were in their boats fishing as well, and Jesus simply said, Come follow me. And they got in line. Matthew would remember back to when his name was Levi and he was working as a tax collector in the booth and just despised by the people. And in the midst of doing his job and this animosity he was feeling in the midst of doing it, Jesus walks up and just says, follow me. And immediately he left his booth and started to follow. Now each of the disciples would have a story to tell when they heard Jesus chose them. But it's not just them. Because each of us here has a story to tell as well. Each of us here has a story of how God entered into your life. Of how God used events, how God used people to draw you unto himself. What is your story? I would genuinely love to hear that story from you one day. What events, what people did God use to reveal himself to you? It's an important question for us to be able to answer for ourselves. Because in answering that, not only does it give us a powerful testimony that we can share with other people, but it also can give us a sense of confidence in God. A confidence in God who chose you as an act of his will, as an act of his love, as an act of desire. He chose you because he wanted you to know him and to experience his love. And once you responded, once you responded firmly to that call of, come follow me, that wasn't the end of things. That was the beginning of your journey. Because at that point is when we pick up the mission of Jesus Christ. At that point is when we go forward to bear good fruit. Fruit that will last for eternity, according to the Father's will. And one definition of good fruit is evangelism where we go out and share the love and the truth of Jesus Christ, that others may come to know him and enter into his kingdom. Now, in your story, who told you the good news? Who in your story shared with you the love and the truth of Jesus Christ? Maybe it was a parent, a friend, a pastor, a teacher. It's even possible that you, you heard it on the television, of all places. But as you think about who it was that shared the good news with you, did you ever consider that you were their fruit? Because before any of us were branches, we were fruit. We were somebody else's fruit. And from that point on, once we positively affirm that call, we then move from fruit to branches. And we then need to go bear good fruit. And as you think about the person who shared with you the good news of Jesus Christ, I would not be the least bit surprised is if your memory of that person is associated with love. 
And if so, then what you're experiencing, what you're feeling in that memory is God's love revealed through that faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Because as Jesus commissioned us to go into all the world and to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to bear good fruit, that command goes hand in hand with his command to love one another. Because as we go about doing that, he wants people to think of us and associate us with love. Now in the future, we as a church are going to enter into a time of visioning. A time when we are going to together discern the manner in which God desires for us to live out the Great Commission in this region of Edmonton and perhaps beyond. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But I earnestly hope and I earnestly pray that part of that vision will be that we will be a church who is known by love. That we would love the lost. That we would love the wounded. That we would love those who are struggling. That they too would come to know freedom in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But also that we would be known as a loving church who sacrificially loved each other. That we may show patience as we work to understand another's differing point of view. That we may show grace if the ministry or if the service doesn't go the way that we preferred. That if one of us is doubting, if one of us is going through a season of struggle, that we would be encouragers rather than judges. That we would be agents of reconciliation when one of us has wronged another. That we would strive to prevent barriers from coming up over things like age and gender and race and ethnicity. And I pray that we would speak love and truth. Always, always assuming the best of one another. And if we could do that, if that could be part of the vision of us going forward, then I honestly believe we would have a chance of emulating Paul's description of Christian community found in Colossians chapter 3. When he says this, therefore as God's chosen people, he's talking to us, who are holy and dearly loved, may we clothe ourselves in compassion, in kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. May we bear with one another. May we forgive one another just, just as God's forgiven us. And over all of these virtues, put on love. Because love binds them together. It will bind us together in perfect unity. Church, may we always strive to love one another, just as Christ first loved us. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, what else can we say but, but thank you? Thank you that you loved us first, that you loved us better, that you loved us as an example, that you loved us in a manner that empowers us. And God, as each of us reflects upon that reality, may, may we just ponder in our hearts, what is our response to that? How can we love different or love better or love more, or whatever the case may be in our hearts? God, may you be honored through our acts and service of love. May you be known through our love. And may we be known as a people who love. Not for our own sake, Lord, but for your glory, because we love, because you first loved us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.